A reading from the gospel according to St. Matthew, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 24th verse. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, we're going to look at our passage from Matthew 13, we just heard, on the parable of the weeds. And one thing we need to remember about this passage is that even though by the end of it, Jesus gets into talking about all sorts of stuff in the future and the end of the age, the parable itself is really meant to address our lives now in this age. However, while last week in the Sermon on Rebecca, we were given this beautiful image of the church as the pure bride of Christ, with this parable, Jesus is offering a much less attractive image of the church as a weedy field. And yet, despite the stark contrast between those two images of the church, both are true. Our identity as the pure bride of Christ speaks to how God in Christ sees us, how he views us, as well as what he is making us into as he sanctifies our character, both collectively and individually. But in the meantime, the image of a field seated with both wheat and weeds, 
reflects the church as we experience it in this life. The reality on the ground here while we are in the midst of this process of being made holy. So let's get into it. Earlier in the chapter, we were told that Jesus had sat down beside the sea and after great crowds gathered around them, he began speaking in parables. Well, when our passage opens later in the chapter, Jesus puts this parable before the crowd saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. More traditional versions of the Bible translate that word wheat as tares. So some of you may have heard, may have been more familiar with the, this parable being known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. But continuing on, Jesus says, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? But he said to them, an enemy has done this. And because Jesus wanted his parables to resonate with his listeners and be relatable, he would draw upon real-life situations that were familiar to his, the crowds he was speaking to. And since first century Israel was an agricultural society, Jesus often would borrow scenarios from the realm of farming, as he does here. This scenario describes a man who's sown seed for wheat in his field, but then has an enemy come and sow seeds for weeds among that wheat. So this situation was likely the result of a feud between farmers, which was not uncommon or unheard of in those times at all. In fact, the Romans even had, they had to make a law forbidding farmers from sowing poisonous plants in their neighbor's fields. And yet that's exactly what has happened here in this parable. The particular weed referred to in the original Greek is a weed called darnel. Darnel was a type of ryegrass that every farmer had to be aware of in Jesus' day because it was poisonous. And for most of the time it's growing, it looks very similar to wheat. In fact, it is only when the darnel begins to bear its head of grain that it becomes obvious that it isn't wheat. And that's because the head of grain on Darnell is black. So when the time of harvesting came, the farmers would have to make sure that no Darnell was present among the wheat in order for the wheat flour to remain edible. But in this parable, of course, it's not yet harvest time. But once the master makes clear that an enemy has done this, the servant's first impulse is to go out and begin pulling up the weeds. They asked their master, then do you want us to go and gather them? Now, weeding would actually be done very early on in the growth cycle, back in the spring. But these plants have already borne their heads of grain. So the master replies, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. The master is rightly concerned that at this stage, the weeds couldn't be pulled up without uprooting some of the good wheat as well. So instead, he instructs them, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
And this again was consistent with the normal practice for farming wheat. Because by the time of harvest, the darnel and the wheat would have distinguished themselves from one another. Not just by the darnel having a black head of grain, but by, the, by harvest time, they would be different heights. The darnel at maturity stands a little bit shorter than the wheat. And so the harvester can, can harvest them separately more easily. So the master's telling his servants to leave this for the reapers to sort out. And that's the parable. After it, Jesus tells a few more parables in verses 31 to 33, which weren't included in the reading. But later on in verse 36, the disciples finally get Jesus alone. And they ask him to explain what exactly he meant by that parable of the weeds in the field. So Jesus explains, at least to the point of telling them what each element in the parable represents. In verse 37, he answers, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. But then Jesus proceeds to explain in detail about the end of the age, about the day of judgment to them. So notice, beyond explaining what the different elements in the parable represent, he never really decodes what it means for us in this age. And so that's what I'll try to do in what's left of my time today. Within the parable itself, Jesus was instructing believers for how to navigate life in this age we're living in now. When it's after his death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, but when sin remains, even, of course, within the church. This is the reality that the presence of both wheat and weeds growing together in the field is meant to represent. And the servant's impulse to respond to the recogn their recognition of weeds by pulling them out. Well, that represents our impulse to stand in judgment of others when we identify sin in their lives. Or to go even further and classify people sort of dualistically as either good or bad. To divide people into sort of a good list and bad list based on their actions. That's the impulse Jesus is calling us to question. The master in the parable commands his servants not to pull the weeds, whatever their impulse. And when we understand that weed pulling as a parable, when we understand that as a parable for judging others, then this teaching begins to echo what Jesus taught earlier in Matthew in chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. An excerpt of that passage is reprinted in your bulletin where Jesus said memorably, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But as familiar as that command is to many of us, it's important that we understand what precisely Jesus is referring to when he says, judge not, because this command is often misunderstood. First of all, when Jesus commands us not to judge, he is not meaning to discourage us from identifying sin as sin. That is what we might call discernment. If we're just trying to kind of use different vocabulary for each thing. Discernment is separate from judging. 
And frankly, discernment is completely necessary for any of us to function as faithful Christians. We have to be able to identify sin, right, both in ourselves and in others, so that we can recognize what behaviors and attitudes are toxic and harmful to us and others. For example, if somebody robs a bank, it is not judging them for me to identify that what they've done is stealing and it's wrong, right? I'm not judging them to say that's wrong. In other words, I have to be able to discern or identify what sin is and what sin isn't in order to not do it myself or to be, not be complicit in someone else doing it. In contrast to discernment is judgment. The judgment that Jesus prohibits goes beyond merely discerning that some behavior is sin. And it goes beyond that and responds to that sin by mistreating the person doing it, the person we're in relationship Treating them based upon their sin, right? So we've crossed the line into judgment when we go beyond simply discerning sin and take it upon ourselves to mete out punishment or to hold people in contempt or treat them with disrespect on account of their sin. Well, why doesn't Jesus want us to do this? Why doesn't Jesus want us to treat someone according to their sin? Well, because he doesn't treat us according to ours. And we are meant to imitate and reflect him. The very gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that God placed the punishment and condemnation that we deserve for our sin onto Jesus at the cross. So that by virtue of our faith in Christ, God doesn't treat us in the manner we deserve. God doesn't treat us according to our sin. Which is to say that God's willingness here to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow up alongside one another, his willingness to do that in this age of the church, isn't just good news for others. It's good news for us. Because none of us are living in the life of the kingdom all the time. So by teaching us not to judge, Jesus is calling us to treat others in the same way he treats us. And that is with grace and with love. Now, does this mean we never talk about sin or never address sin with anyone? No, it doesn't mean that. And here's where the other passage I include in your bulletin from Galatians is helpful. In Galatians 6, 1, the first half says, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here Paul indicates that there are absolutely situations where we must speak the truth to someone about their sin. However, I want to suggest to you that in order to apply this correctly today, we must be mindful of a significant way that the church and society today differs from when Paul wrote this letter in the first century. And that difference is in respect to authority. The change between society and the church now and in Paul's day in the first century is that the authority we can is the comes in the authority that we can presume to have to speak into the lives of other believers. 
You see, in the first century, when people chose to follow Jesus and join the fellowship of the church, this was a much starker choice than it often is today. It was common that people truly were leaving their previous lives and relationships behind, and the church was literally becoming their new family. And believers in those days, therefore, simply took for granted that any other member of that fellowship could speak into their life and hold them accountable. This was also because there was a much stronger belief in those days, the pre-modern days, that poor choices of any individual in a group could compromise the whole group. I'm not saying that that's not true anymore. I'm just saying that that is not believed nearly to the extent that it was before 1500. And so what changed? What caused this change? Well, a few things. First, after Christianity was legalized and became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, this introduced a new reality that we call nominal Christianity. Nominal Christians. That is, Christians in name. This is people who identified as Christians and admired what Jesus had done. Even maybe believed that he died and rose from the dead but who were not necessarily committed to living as as his disciples. Such a thing didn't really exist until the fourth century. Ever since then, though, the church has had to accommodate this reality of people having what you might call various levels of buy-in on the gospel or on following Jesus. Second, and more recently in history, is the rise of individualism in Western society over the last 500 years, accompanied in particular by a diminishing trust in authority structures, particularly in America over the past 50 years. These factors have come to mean that in relationships among believers, no one can assume that they have the authority to speak into the lives of their brothers and sisters in the faith. Instead, These factors have instead created an environment where the norm is that someone has to be granted, someone has to grant you that authority first. Either grant it to you implicitly or explicitly. Or else you risk doing more damage than good. So this is the case, for better or for worse. Even as a pastor in the 21st century, I cannot assume that just because someone attends this church or is a parishioner, that they are open to me speaking into their lives personally, right? Unless they invite input or ask a question or ask for help, I can't assume they've given me that authority to speak in their lives about sin or to hold them accountable for anything. Now, by attending a service or tuning into this live stream, they're at least granting authority to to be preached to by me corporately in a corporate sense. Although the level of authority one grants to what I preach is also going to vary, right? It's not that this is better or worse than the way things were in biblical times. It's just that it's different. And so we have to apply the principles of Scripture with this change in mind. So when we discern that another believer is caught up in sin, before we attempt to piously restore them in a spirit of gentleness, we should consider whether that is within the authority that we've been granted. 
So that's the first half of Galatians 6.1. But, but back to the second half. There Paul warns believers to, quote, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What this highlights is that maintaining boundaries is also different from judgment. Paul's saying, if you discern someone's in sin, protect yourself from becoming entangled with it. How do we protect ourselves from that? With boundaries. But it's also important to distinguish boundaries from judgment because a common tactic of what I might call toxic people is to characterize a boundary we put in in the relationship as either being unforgiveness or holding a grudge. Toxic people will do this, at least subconsciously, in order to make us feel guilty or unchristian about holding a boundary until, we'll, until we'll, you know, we're so guilty that we drop the boundary. But as I've said many times, we have to have more nuance than that. And when people continue to sin against us in a relationship, and we fail to put a stop to it, or we allow them to continue doing it over and over, over again, we are dishonoring both them and ourselves. So having unhealthy boundaries is not the same as judgment or unforgiveness holding a grudge. So this image we're provided in verse 30 of the parable is of God allowing the weeds and the wheat to grow up together. And if that's what God is doing... Therefore, so should we. Rather than seeking to weed all of the bad out, the task we've been given is the task of loving others and ourselves by practicing forgiveness, by exercising boundaries, and by gently speaking the truth where it is welcome or to protect those in our charge. And the fact of the very presence of the weeds among the wheat affords us the opportunity to learn to imitate Christ in all of these ways. The fact that it's there and that it does this for us creates kind of this environment of a proving ground that isn't always fun, but that God uses to sanctify us and to uh, cause friction to uh, smooth us out more into the likeness of Christ, that alone speaks to God's wisdom in allowing the weeds to remain. So Jesus commands us to resist our impulse to judge. And yet for most of us, if we're honest, being judgmental toward others treating them according to their sin and meeting out kind of punishment, either aggressively or passively aggressively, if we're honest, that is downright habitual for most, if not all of us. Jesus talks about how willing we can be to spot and remove the speck in our brother's eye. Well, most all of us live with our tweezers at the ready. Oh, let me get that for you. So to have any chance then of, of conforming to his command, we have to seek to understand the roots of judgment in our hearts. And I would suggest that at its core, judgmentalness is a rejection of the reality that we too live under grace. That we, it's a rejection of the, the truth that we are justified. That is, that we are made acceptable to God by faith alone, not by what we do. 
Judgmentalness is kind of a symptom that we've got on, gotten instead onto that performance track, that prideful uh, earning, our se- our own, earning our own righteousness, trying to earn God's love that Jesus already won for us track. But because many of us so quickly get into a performance mentality with God, when that happens, when we're operating there, what that creates is a need to minimize our own sinfulness that's still there. And so one way of doing this, one way of minimizing our own sinfulness and feeling more lovable is by amplifying the wrongs of others. Amplifying the wrongs of others allows us to ignore what's wrong in our own lives. So it's unbelief, really. It's a way to resist self-examination, repentance, and change. All that that comes with allowing God to reign in our lives. That's what judgmentalness is. But that's what our sinfulness causes us to prefer. We prefer playing God in someone else's life more than we prefer submitting to God ourselves. But that's not actually what anybody needs. We may rationalize uh, all the time that this person needs us to take, take this speck out of their eye for them. They're, they're blind to, which they're usually not, we're doing them a favor. But people don't need us to be God. They need God to be God. They need us, therefore, what they need from us is to reflect God's love for them, his unconditional love for them, so that they will then be more willing to allow him to be their God. After all, he's a lot better at it than we are. And a lot more merciful too. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.